We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Stay tuned to the end of the interview, where, as usual, I will give you some actionable insights that I learned from my guest. These insights are also in the show notes, and all of the show notes are over at theentrepreneurethos.com. As always, thanks for listening. Now, on to my guest for today, Alan Adamson, co-founder of Metaforce the special forces of marketing, and author of several books on branding and marketing. Alan studied film in college, but realized he didn't have the drive for making films he saw in others. This realization that you needed to have both passion and talent for what you spend your life doing has been a guiding principle for him. After earning an MBA at NYU Stern School, he went to work in advertising, starting with Unilever, then moving to an agency work and eventually leading Landor Associates, a global branding firm. Alan made the leap to entrepreneurship six years ago when he decided to write his next book. At Metaforce, Alan seeks first to listen and understand what his clients' problems are and then work with them on finding a solution rather than simply offering a service that may or may not be effective. As someone who has worked for years in advertising and marketing, Alan has found himself at the intersection of creativity and business, straddling the line between offering innovative solutions but also recognizing the constraints of budgets and deadlines. Key to succeeding in this area, Alan says, is embracing non-linear thinking. In writing his books, Alan has found he connects naturally with a community of colleagues and potential clients while also learning and then sharing what he's learned. Now, let's get better together. Alan Adamson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. You are the co-founder and managing partner of Metaforce, the special forces of marketing, (laughs) which I love because I actually have a bunch of special forces friends that I'm a little concerned about given the uh, 
state Need of for the them world. right now. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're in probably in places they're not going to tell me about, right. <laughs> right. Not, not at the mall. Yeah. They're not at the mall. Exactly. It's like, yeah, I can't tell you where I am, but I'm somewhere. Hint, right. hint, wink, wink. Um, you're actually working on your fifth book called seeing the how, which we'll talk a little bit about in a second. But as I always like to say, why don't you tell us how you got to do what you're doing today? Well, I started in the traditional way most people started. I went to college and I thought I was going to be a filmmaker. And then I didn't get hired by Spielberg to, you know, make films. And so I went to business school and then I went to a big corporate job uh, in consumer packaged goods at a company called Unilever, which is uh, like a P&G. They make Dove soap and lots of other stuff. And then I spent some time in advertising and ultimately ended up in a, in a very niche part of marketing called brand uh, branding and brand. And uh, I would often talk to people interviewing for a job and they say, why should I you know, join you? And I, I, as I was running the, the office and I said, well, uh, they say, what am I going to be working on? Like if, I, if I start November 1, what, what account, what product, what challenge I'm going to be working on? And I'd say, you know, what's strange about this business uh, is that I don't know what we're going to be working on in three months. <laughs> you know, you're going to join a client's going to call and say, I have this problem. I, you know, I can't sell any of my tuna fish. We will together write a proposal to say how we're going to make you sell more tuna fish. We'll present it to the client. The client will ask some questions. We'll convince them we're great. We'll then help them sell more tuna fish and then we'll send them a bill. And I would always joke with them and say, look, if you don't like it here at Landor, I'm teaching you how to be an entrepreneur. You're going to learn to listen to a client, see a problem, put a team together and solve it, and then send them an invoice, which was very different than the world I grew up in. But I always talked about that for years as I was running this company. And yes, I, I got a bigger bonus if we made more money and a less bonus. We, but ultimately, I, I got a salary. <laughs> and if I didn't sell anybody and if I didn't win any consulting gigs and if we didn't get any new clients, I could still you know, have my Cheerios in the morning. You know, my kids could still go to college. So I was talking a big game. Uh, but, you know, it was a big difference when I decided to do it and decided to, and there are a number of reasons I went into it, but I decided that, gee, um, all of a sudden I was putting teams together with lots of freelancers, not our employees because we didn't have the right staff and a whole bunch of things. So I finally decided to actually want to write another book. The company said, Alan, we really can't have you writing another book because we need you to be out driving revenue. And I said, no, no, you don't understand. If I write a book and talk to a bunch of people, I'll have something interesting to say. You know, clients will call me. And when I go in to talk about it, I'll be able to share some learning with them. So the book will be good for business. No, no, no. We can't, we can't invest in you writing a book. It, uh, so I said, look, um, that's what I want to do. And so I'm going to do it on my own. <laughs> uh, I left. Uh, a couple clients fortunately came with me. <laughs> uh, and so while I was writing the books, I wasn't unable to buy Cheerios. Uh, and I became an entrepreneur much later in life. But I had talked about it for a long time. That's probably a longer answer than you wanted. No, but it was, uh, it, was, it was an event that happened that forced me to take a risk that I had gotten complacent on. And of course, in the last six years that I've been doing this, I've been more successful than many, many, most of my years in corporate America. Oh, wow. So it's only been six years. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I mean, it's so interesting because I, I agree with you on the book thing. Like, I, I, I think it's completely myopic to not let someone write about what they know 
it is open so many doors for people and it gives you an instant amount of credibility because it's a hard right. thing to do. Everyone says they want to write a book, right? But it's hard. I mean, I've yeah, it's not like seven. a novel where you're staring right. out at the ocean and trying to make up stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You actually have to go talk to people, have something interesting yeah. to say. And um, you know, as you know, if I called up and said, Look, can I talk to you about what we do at Landor and how we can help your brand? You go, nah, I'm fine. Thanks. Love you. But, right. <laughs> but if right, I said, right. Look, I want to interview you for a book and learn how you started your podcast and how you did this, you'll say, Oh, yeah, Alan, I'll talk to you. So I was able to talk to far more people. And of course, half of them become clients later on because yeah. you send them the book, you get to build a relationship. Um, and it's a, for a consulting based business. Uh, it's a, in a world of too much content is still a differentiator. 100%, 100%. I mean, I just published a book called Story Driven Outreach, which is a small little book about how to write better emails and get better response rates. And I had a, a actually the people that, that I've had interviewed on this show. Right. I said, hey, I'm writing this book about outreach. I'm doing this FAQ section. Send in your questions and I'll answer them and you'll be part of the book, right? And I didn't right. think anyone would care, right? I think I got like 25 responses. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and I was able to talk to people that ordinarily CEOs and other people that, that if I were trying to call them up from my vantage point as a, 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 com a communication executive, th that unless they had that exact problem that they really wanted to talk at that moment, I was a waste. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think building the community of people like that eventually would maybe want to do business with you just seems right. like the better way to go. And I think, you know, it's a really astute observation that, yeah, if you're going to talk to someone about like how they got to what they're doing, as opposed to this is what I have to sell you, it's a, it's a way easier conversation. Right. And eventually in that conversation, you will, they'll tell you their problem that they're, they can't sell the tuna fish and no one's buying it anymore. And then you can always call them back and say, look, I've been thinking about tuna fish. And can I share some ideas with you? As yeah. opposed to if I came in and said, you know, you, you seem to be doing really well. How can I help you? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's really, it's really good. And so you, you mentioned that you, you went to college to be a filmmaker. Yeah, I, 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 I like that. I, I enjoyed doing that. Um, um, I did, uh, creativity was part of it. And so, but I found out that while I enjoyed it on Saturday and Sunday, I didn't you know, do it. I, I went to the football games and, you know, but the people that were into film, you know, they did it 24 seven, they were up all night. Uh, most of them, or maybe all of them were more talented than me. And when you combined talent and a fanatical passion for me, it was something I enjoyed, but I wasn't, you know, it wasn't 24 seven. So to be successful in the creative business, sometimes you have to be super talented, super passionate and lucky. And I, you know, <laughs> um, so I ended up actually after business school going into advertising where I got to be involved in 30 second movies talking right. about uh, right. uh, coffee or uh, uh, toothpaste or other things. <laughs> and so how does, how does that creative side, the filmmaking side, how does that translate to the business world? Because I've interviewed a couple of folks that have like started out in film, started out in like creative writing, went into business and they just have a different take on it. I mean, Traditional, like hardcore, like, oh, I'm in the business or, or tech people, I think it's the same. They don't they have a different perspective, but I found that people that started out in creativity and then found the knack for business, there's something there. And I was just curious, like, what, what did you take over from that filmmaking experience and that, that passion for it? 
Gee, it sounds like you've been reading my mind. Uh, uh, I'm going to call you. Know, you know, I am a professional podcaster. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's, sort of. <laughs> uh, you're doing a, what's, uh, if I go back to Star Trek land, you're doing a Vulcan mind mode with me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the type of business I'm in is what I call, it's nonlinear problem solving. You can't add up and say, you know, I'm going to ask 25 people and I got 23 answers and the answer is 62. Yeah, lots of problems in business cannot be solved by asking, you know, it's, well, the thing you ask customers what they want, they'll tell you what they think they want <laughs> or the, what you think the answer is, you know, so they can't even tell you what they want. That's big Steve Jobs things. But, you know, lots of business problems can't be solved by filling out an Excel spreadsheet. And, you know, what happens in lots of businesses is you come up with a, somebody creative comes up with an idea, how to whiten your teeth, how to make your laundry cleaner, uh, you know, how to solve a, a problem. And then you hire lots of people in the business to optimize it, to take cost out, to make it more efficient, to, you know, and, and yes, you, you, there is that. It's an important role. I mean, if you look at just what happened with uh, Peloton, I'm not sure of all the Peloton stuff, but, you know, John, the founder of Peloton, saw a need came up with a problem, came up with a great solution at, at the magical time where we were all locked up. Yeah. Um, uh, but clearly his skill set was not in optimization and running a business. For sure. And um, so I think creative people can solve what I call nonlinear problems. You can't just Excel spreadsheet your way to a big idea, but um, you, you, know, you need to, I, I was on the, in, in advertising, I was on the intersection between the rational world of business and the creative world of advertising because the client would say, I need a big idea on Tuesday <laughs> and yeah, I need three, you know, three versions of it and come back next Tuesday with a big idea to help me sell more, um, uh, Crest toothpaste. Yeah. And when I met with my creative teams, the, the art directors and the writers and the producers, you know, they could barely get into the office and tie their shoelaces. You know, they didn't even, <laughs> if I told them I needed that by Tuesday, I didn't even know if they were going to make it into the office. But, you know, they just were not in the team. They were, you know, oftentimes they didn't have that. They were not linear thinkers. They said, what do you mean by Tuesday? I, I, I'm, and it was, so I had to connect the world of creativity with the need for companies to say, to tell the management and on Tuesday, we'll have the idea on Thursday. We'll, and so then sales will go up on Friday and then I'll get my bonus on Saturday. And so being at the intersection of the world of creativity and business was, is, was, was, a, I enjoyed it because I enjoyed being in both worlds, but that's another dimension of it that businesses need creative thinkers, but they're not really set up to allow them to flourish. You have yeah. to be at your desk at eight thirty. You need to fill out your timesheet. <laughs> you, you know, you know, you, everything has to start with an outline. And sometimes the best creative thinkers are walking in at ten o'clock because they got lost in the park watching birds. And <laughs> but you'd rather have them thinking about your problem than the person that got on to to work at eight twenty nine. Hundred percent, hundred percent. I've always found that to me, entrepreneurs are like the creatives of the business world. Right. And I think, I think when you have that kind of, when you, I love the whole intersection of business and creativity, I think that's what we do. Yep. And cause, cause when you can straddle those two things, you sort of can translate between the chaos of both because both right. are chaotic. Right. Right. I, yeah, I remember like, you know, in, in the tech world, you know, software engineers are like notorious for like rolling in at noon, you know, right. but they're like up till midnight coding right. and they're just like, you know, deadline what's it what do you mean there's just you know bug free what do you there's never bug free code and you're like exactly. what do you mean 
there has to be. (laughs) Exactly. But, but you need, and that's the, you know, the other thing the companies are learning as they grow is that you need people who look at the same um, water bottle and can see three different things in it, as opposed to everyone seeing it. That's just a water bottle. Um, And if you have everyone that has a monolithic view of the world, you will get disrupted and displaced and you'll be out of business pretty soon. Lots of companies, you know, have just hired everyone that was like them. Everyone saw the same way. Everyone went to the same fraternity. <laughs> everyone drank the same beer and, and, you know, everyone looked at the pro- and then they get disrupted. If you look at yeah. what happened to entrepreneur, you know, yeah. Gillette did not get disrupted by Schick. Yeah. <laughs> it got disrupted. Dollar by- Shave Club. Yeah, exactly. Somebody from outside of the bubble. Yeah. Usually takes out the leader. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. No, totally. I mean, so it, is there a way you can foster this sort of nonlinear thinking? Are you just born with it? or is, I think some people, there's a piece of it you you need to be, yeah, I, I don't think you can teach it. Um, and, you know, part of being successful is, I think, which just gets to the, you know, what everyone knows, is you have to try to find things that you are naturally good at <laughs> um, with things you love to do. <laughs> um, you know, when I was at uh, Unilever, uh, you know, it was in, it was in the, you know, the detergent business and I would be at lunch and everyone at the table wanted to talk about detergent the entire time. And and I liked it. It was interesting. You know, how do you get somebody to switch from one to the other and do you put bleach in it or not bleach in it? Uh, but, you know, the people at the table were like they woke up and they wanted to talk about detergent and i you know i went there because it was a great place to learn marketing because if i i don't want to shock any of your listeners but the difference in one detergent and the other is it's really hard to see so if you can market one better than the other it's not based on the product efficacy so it was a great place to learn but i soon realized after doing the job for five years or whatever that i wasn't running in the park thinking about detergent i wasn't going out with my friends and I and say, Hey, let me tell you what I did at the office today. We, we found out to put, how to put more whitening powder, <laughs> whitening power in the detergent. Um, so I think part of it is um, they were more tuned to that world and they were better at it than I was. They were better at cost reducing the detergent or exactly figuring out, you know, where to put the coupon and where to run the advertising and how much media weight to put in each. Um, so finding out what you're good at and then trying to f- find out what you like and then finding a place where it matters. Yeah. Which is yeah. easy in theory, but really hard to do. I agree. I agree. It took me a long time to figure out I was unemployable and needed <laughs> to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, because everyone goes down the same chute and you all think you want to. Yeah. And, and I, and I like the, I, you know, it's interesting because uh, you know, I, I have a new appreciation for creativity. You know, I mean, I started out as a semiconductor engineer, right? So like I built the chips in your phone as an example, USB, Bluetooth, stuff like that. And talk about like, there's some creativity, but it's pretty rigid when you're going right. to spend like a million bucks on a mass set to make chips. And those right. chips are at 99%. And if you, exactly. You yeah, there's that not up. a lot of room for variance. No, no. And, and the creativity came in, what are we going to build? Mm-hmm. Not necessarily how we're going to build it, although there is some, but it's very rigid, like very like statistics and yield enhancement. I mean, the whole thing, it was just, it was actually a really cool um, experience because I got to really appreciate that side of the business where someone's got to make your crazy thing. 
you better make it easy to make. Otherwise, otherwise you're going to be a footnote on somebody else's whatever happened to. Right. I think your, your, um, your example of Peloton is a classic, mm-hmm. like great idea, can't ex- execute it too, too costly. And of course they, what do they hire? They hire McKinsey. And what's McKinsey going to say? Cut mm-hmm. costs. Like it's right. McKinsey, like the, to your point about everyone went to the same college, drank the same beer and went to the same fraternity. Well, that's just McKinsey. Like they're going right. to tell you exactly the same thing. Right. They're going to say 14 people on this floor lead to the even 10 people here. And yeah. you, you can hire rational people to, to unwind things. You can't hire rational people to build things. No, I that that I agree. It is really hard to build something from scratch being rational and reasonable. You have to be a little nutty, I think. Right. You have to believe. Yeah. <laughs> you have to drink your own Kool-Aid. Yeah. You do. To a certain degree, it's true. And you got to be like, I believe. And I, cause I remember, like I talked to a lot of younger entrepreneurs and it's so funny because, you know, they get really discouraged because everyone's telling them, well, your idea is stupid. And I'm going, no, your idea is not stupid. No idea is stupid. It's just whether or not your idea is actually going to make it is really dependent on if someone wants to buy it. And all my author friends who are just author authors, right? They are like, I just want to write. Yeah, man, I just love the process and I love the words, you know? And then when it comes to marketing their book, they like fall flat. I mean, even I have this problem. <laughs> like, yeah, I know it, what it, I'm doing. If, so. Yeah, especially in the world we are today, just yeah. because you write it doesn't mean anyone can see it. No, I think it's half the battle, writing the thing. The other half's marketing it. I think it's yeah. more important to market it and have a platform. Like the, the book I just did, Traditionally, you know, the six books before that were books I wanted to write. This last one was books that people actually wanted to read. Because <laughs> no. I asked them, right? What do you want to hear about? They're like, oh, outreach. How do I get people to respond to my emails? I'm like, well, I know how to do that. So, right. right? But mm-hmm. it's after six, that was the seventh. <laughs> yeah. Well, what they, that's the definition of insanity is doing the same <laughs> thing each time and uh, expecting a different result. Right. And, you know, sometimes creativity, like, you know, you get in a rut or like you're, you're tr- I think the thing was interesting is I'm always about, and I'm, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts on this. I'm about practice. I think you have to practice your creativity and you have to throw away a lot of bad ideas and you got to do a lot of things that don't work so that you can kind of build the capacity to like do that creativity on a deadline. As an example, you're, you know, when, when you said client calls you up and says, got to sell more tuna fish. I need, I need the creative by Tuesday. And you're like, well, it's Thursday. Uh, right. how, you know, the only reason why you can pull that off right. is because of the, you've practiced. Right. And that's, I think the thing that I just don't understand. Well, I think that is the superpower of creatives. The ones that practice the most and do the most. I mean, like the, like the, the book that's the book I'm writing, the, the memoir I'm writing, which is going to come out next year. It's like 45,000 words. I've, I probably wrote 120,000 words for it. And it was all practice. Oh, this doesn't work again, mm-hmm. again. And when you iterate fast, I, and again, I'd love your thoughts on this. That's where the creativity on the deadline is just, you can do it. Yeah. No, I, I um, one of my favorite competitive podcasts uh is uh is how i built this yes and all the stories um are about how close they came to failing and how how often they failed before they got the bike right before they had the handle or the soul cycle story every you think they just walk in as you said with the idea and aha 
they're on the show and they're on Shark Tank and they're, you know, looking at uh, at uh, Ferraris. But, mm-hmm. you know, most of the time they had the idea, but it's not it's 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 the devils in getting it exactly right and iterating and practice. And oftentimes they are better at that because they failed a couple of times and they've learned how to ask <laughs> ask people what do you want to read about they've learned yeah. to, you know to, to to moderate their headset and passion for the idea with all right let me just make sure i i understand how it's going to land yeah so someone put it to me as falling in love with the problem and not the product that's a classic you know uh, yes and that's a um lots of people try to sell what they make as opposed to listen what the problem is uh and um yeah, uh, every innovation firm that's in the business now in the innovation space trains their people. Say, look, <laughs> you know, um, fall in love with the problem. Don't fall in love with your solution to that problem because it's unlikely it's going to be right out of the you know when they when you get out of the on deck circle. Oh yeah, it, it rarely is. It rarely mm-hmm. is. And I'm I'm curious, you know, you know, you're you're running metaphors and you know, creative marketing company trying to help folks obviously probably sell more than just detergent, yeah. <laughs> better stuff. Right. Yeah. And, I, and I'm curious, how, how do you approach that? Cause what I've seen, cause you know, I, I do something similar <clears throat> for tech startups. And what I've found is that most tech startups, tech founders are, they fall in love with their product more. And it's really hard to move them from, you know, we got to really focus on the problem and the customer more and yeah, your cool little whiz bang gadget thing, but you know what? Anyone can do that. It's really going to be about how we talk about it. And I'm just curious, like how does that tension hold up with what you do? Um, That's, that is the core of, um, of what I make my money doing, which is listening to a a client talk about a problem. And not jump to a solution, not jump that they need advertising or not jump that they need a new website or some digital or social or influencers. Hold off on the solution until I really understand the problem and figure out how to solve it agnostically. Because if you go to many marketing services companies, if you go to an ad agency, you know, you could tell them your problem, but you can be pretty sure they're going to suggest an ad as the solution. <laughs> oh, yeah. I got a hammer. Yeah. Where's the nail? <laughs> uh, exactly. So, um, and in fact, this new book I'm writing, uh, it's called Seeing the How, struck me that a, a lot of innovation and new companies and new products and entrepreneurs are not focused on doing a better don't take this wrong way, processing, processor chip. You know, it's, it's not focused on making the product necessarily better. I mean, there's some of that, but figuring out how, do, how you do things is important. You know, you're not trying to sell you a new product, but looking at how you, in Manhattan, you know, for years, people were hailing taxis by raising their hand in the rain and getting, you know, it, it, that's just how things were done until, of course, yes, you needed some technology. All of a sudden, people's like, gee, I wonder if I didn't have to, yeah. you know, I wonder if I could just, tell the taxi where I'm at and have them pick me up. Now, yes, you had to have the smartphones to do that, but you know, lots of the entrepreneurs that succeed don't succeed by developing a better mousetrap, but by solving a customer problem that other people have ignored. 
because even back to Peloton, I want to pick on that story. You know, there were a hundred stationary bikes out there. I, you know, oh, I, yeah. I had my laundry hanging on one for years. Um, and, you know, it, it, so he didn't invent the stationary bike. He didn't invent the iPad. He just put the two things together and solved a different problem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely. <laughs> I just think it's, it's just, it's just so fascinating because, you know, I live in San Francisco and during the pandemic, I would see almost every day I'd walk out, you know, take a little walk. Almost every day I would see a delivery van full of Pelotons yep. just driving around the city. And, you know, I lived in Pack Heights, which is a little bit more affluent, but it was like, wow, these are everywhere. And, you know, I never, I don't like that kind of thing. I'd much rather go outside and, you know, even if I just to walk just because I like the outside, but I was curious because... I'm like, what's going to happen when the pandemic's over? Like people are going to walk outside again. <laughs> yeah. And they're going to go back to the gym. I mean, cause right. you know, like if you're in a city and you're single, you go to the gym to meet people. Like, yeah. That was know, always my thing when I used to, I used to, I used to be a heavy gym user and, but I knew not to go because I, yeah, I'm married and have some kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew the last time I wanted to go to the gym would be from, you know, five to eight 30 at night. Because it was like going to a you know a club, and you know not only would you not be able to get on the elliptical for an hour, but you know there'd be somebody on the elliptical next to you sweating and spilling it on you. So if you went at lunchtime, it was empty, and so so or early in the morning if you yeah that's even better. Yeah, anyway. So the point of it is yes, uh, the problem that a lot of health clubs are solving is not you know how to get you to exercise. You can go exercise by running in the park, Uh, but how do you how do you you know, what do you do after work? <laughs> exactly. they, you know, it's not, the, you know, it's probably, not rocket science. Yeah. 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 And so interesting. I mean, have, have you heard of the jobs to be done framework? Yes. Um, uh, I forget. Is that Pine and Gilmore or who took it? I don't remember, but I mean, that's always something that kind of like pops it, up. Part of this is, yeah, it's it, the theory is easy because if you ask, the, if, but you got to ask the right question because when you think of a jobs to be done framework, you then can say, well, the job to be done is getting in shape. Mm-hmm. How might I do that job? If the job to be done is how to get you to join a club with three ellipticals and four bench, you know, that's a different, that's not the job. The job is how to, you know, and then if you, if you dig deeper, how to, how to get in shape, you realize that variety is important and people get bored doing the same every day and, and, and having somebody say that all you can do, Alan, is that all you can lift? What are you, a wimp? That actually could be pretty motivating. <laughs> right, 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 right. Uh, so, you know, the job to be done is not just one job at a health club. There are lots of jobs to be done. You got to figure out which one you can execute well and win at. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, because I mean, again, see this all the time with tech startups. Just, mm-hmm. I mean, you fall in love with the technology and you sort of lose sight of the real problem you're trying to solve. And, you know, like if you, even if you look at the MarTech space, I think there's eight, 9,000 different MarTech SaaS companies, like mm-hmm. all B2B, you know, the whole thing. Right. Um, and a lot of them, they just, there's no differentiation. There's no really hard category we're working yeah. on it right now because everyone does yeah. the same thing. Every, yeah. you know, and even if they have a little bit of a product edge, the only mm-hmm. thing for sure is if you wait 12 seconds, it will be gone. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I, I mean, I totally agree. I think it's, I think, I think products democratized. Right. 
I don't think it matters as much as it used to. I think it's all about branding and marketing and telling the story. I or solving a problem and putting your products together in a way that that really ladders up to making your life better, getting you in shape, not just saying, you know, this bike spins faster so you could burn more calories in 10 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't think it's product anymore. I mean, yeah, I guess there are a whole bunch thing. of, you know, most of the businesses are built, were built on a product, but, you know, you built, that's the competitive advantage was you, it, it, when I worked with Procter and Gamble, it was their classic, you know, they would say you have a need, they would go to their technical people, they would work forever to get three patents to figure out how to, you know, do something, to, you know, get better whiting, white, whiter teeth. They would take three years to test it and get it to the, and then they would launch it. And if that product didn't last for 10 years, they were in trouble, <laughs> you know? Um, so the problem is the product curve is so fast that by the time you come out with a better mousetrap, you don't have that four years as the best toothpaste on the market. You have four minutes and it's hard to recover. So how, so then how, how do you, how do you compete then? We, well, yeah, I think you have to compete on the, as you said, the marketing, the experience. You know, is it easier to buy? Taking, as I say, taking friction out. You know, do I need to remember? You mentioned Dollar Shave Club. Do I need to, you know, remember to go to the, the, the CVS to to buy razors, or are you just going to pop them in my mailbox just when my other razor can't? Not that you have the razor problem, but uh, <laughs> I don't. Uh, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so you know, part of it is to, as you said, what what's the job to be done? Why are people buying this? What job are they trying to do? What role am I playing in their life? Um, not that this blade is twelve percent sharper than the competitor's blade and you can shave either side of your face you'll never feel the difference but maybe maybe eight blades is better than four <laughs> yeah that was like the big joke well gee if there's three blades i wonder what gillette's going to come out with four <laughs> exactly but that's a very product based and of course they got slammed you know yeah. a, they, you know everyone was in that product based how do we how do we make the product just a little bit better? and there's lots of stuff that you know that matters i mean you know, certainly, you know, Cupertino and Apple, you know, mm -hmm. if, if you're holding a phone in your hand 24-7, but it's only 12% battery battery life, you say, well, gee, you know, if, if this phone is in my hand 365 days a year, and this will last without a charge longer, you know, it's only an incremental 12%, but, you know, it becomes, product yeah. becomes important. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's also, and I, I think it's, I think for that, it also depends on the maturity of the brand. Yeah. Like I was talking to someone about this concept of product led growth. I'm not sure if you're familiar with product, -led product. growth. It's uh, yeah, it's, it's a, uh, it's a methodology where you let the product sell itself. Oh, know, okay. Yeah. You know, usually for B2B SaaS or direct to consumer SaaS. Yeah. And if you have a better mousetrap and people can see the difference, they'll pay the difference. Yeah. Well, there's that. But what's interesting is that I was talking to someone about this and I'm like, well, you know, this is new buzzword bingo in the SaaS business, product-led growth. There's a lot of, and there's a lot of great companies that have done it. And it, it all had to do with making the product experience, like try before you buy, but making it so easy that you can just do it. So it'll quote unquote go viral. And, you know, I'm actually taking a class in this right now to kind of to figure this all out. Cause I was just fascinated by it. And, and he, he, the guy I was interviewing, he's like, well, look, I've, I've got a SaaS company. I'm at this level of growth. I'm trying to go product led, but it's not working for me. 
And I'm all, oh, interesting. He's like, yeah, I got you can sign up for free in mid, like less than in seconds you can sign up. And I'm like, oh, interesting. He's like, I think that there's a certain amount of scale where that works and that doesn't work. And I'm curious if, you know, if you're like a product company, like a Procter & Gamble or a Gillette or whatever, if there's a certain amount of scale where the incremental is okay, but then you got to watch for like Dollar Shave Club that's got one blade coming right. up from the bottom and disrupting your entire business model. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think um, it depends on the category. Uh, but generally, yes, in, in, in the old, when I started, you text me when I started in the business, when I started at, at a school, it was a pretty simple formula. You identified what was important to the customer, your product delivered on that. You know, no cavities was important. All you had to do was to do a commercial that says, do you not like cavities and show somebody getting a cavity drilled and in pain? And this toothpaste prevents cavities. 90%. And that's all you had to do is tell the people that this was a better mousetrap and people would run by it. But as as we just been talking about, the, the, the challenging part is now that the minute you come out with that, three other people also have it. So getting something different and the category matters. So you can give your stuff away, but if it's not, if it's not that good or if it if it's not in a type of business where sharing it we live in a in a world so one of my other tenants is that the most powerful tool today in marketing is word of mouth it's been yes. that way for a while maybe yes. word of eye because maybe you can see the picture on your uh, iphone but uh and the, everyone talks to me like, alan do you have anything that would help us go viral we need to get you know and the reality time. is the theory of how to go viral is easy. You know, no one shares ordinary. No one says I flew to LA, the pilot found the airport and it arrived on time. <laughs> you know, you either, you know, share that I was flying to LA and the pilot landed in Kansas city because he got lost or, you know, yeah, or something extraordinary. But if, if the flight just gets there on time and delivers you and the, and you don't end up, hitting turbulence and bumping your head, you'll never tell anybody about the flight to LA. You know, it's only the horrendously bad and and potentially, potentially the horrendously amazing mm. uh, story. And the same is true with products today. So if you, if everything you do is average, if you give away an average piece of SaaS or an average piece of software, people are happy with it. But no one's going to say, hey, you know, I just tried this new product. You got to try this because so no one's going to push it out further. So you can give it away, but if it, it's not sticking, it's not catching yeah, up. Interesting. Yeah. I love the whole, I agree with you. I think the most, the highest ROI marketing is word of mouth, word of eye. Yeah. Like anytime any one of my friends says, Hey, you should take a look at this. I take a look, even if I don't need it, I'll be like, Oh, cool. And, I, but I'm that way. I love any, right. any kind of recommendation. So right. is that part of the strategy that you guys sort of, uh, no, I mean, you have to, so the, the ramification of that is that you know, typical marketing person will say, well, you need to do a new website. We have to do some social. You're going to redo a little um, paid demand gen. You're going to do, you know, you, you check the box. You do a lot of things. But the problem is if you have $10, you'll do a lot of them averagely. No one will notice. No so the, knows. The, 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 the premise of the business is you're better off doing one or two things extraordinarily well than five things averagely. But that's really hard to do. But you're picking out if you're going to do two things really well, what what are you know how can you know what are you great at, and what what can you win at as opposed to most people want to 
mitigate the risks and do a little of everything because they're not sure what will work. <laughs> so they try a little of everything. And in the end, nothing works. And they go, I don't know. We did all this marketing. Nothing happened. Interesting. I love that. What are you great at? What can you win at? Yeah. Interesting. And so, hmm. So we spoke to, we're speaking to one of my clients out in your neck of the woods. I won't tell them your name, but, but they're a sales led culture and they, mm. you know, they're all sales driven. And then they wanted to do some advertising and do an ad campaign and, and, and they wanted to do some social media. And I say, yeah, well, we, but you know, if the sales force doesn't think it's worthwhile, they're not going to use it. You know, they're going to say, well, you know, pay no attention to that ad you saw on <laughs> streaming, you know, this, yeah. and well, so pay you have no to, attention to the man behind, behind the mirror. Exactly. So, you know, you have to do something that fits with your culture and it, you can be really good at and a sales-driven company is never going to spend enough on marketing and advertising because it's no wonder that the companies that do well at advertising in general can also afford the Super Bowl and also afford lots of media money. Um, and, you know, it, because they know how to do that. Interesting. I like that. I like that idea that it has to fit your culture. Because right. like a lot of times people, like, again, I think you mentioned, you know, you go to, you go to an ad agency, they're going to say, right. you need ads. You go right. to a content Digital firm. Agency. We're yeah. going to give you, we're going to, you know, you need influencers. We you have got three influencers. influencers. Yeah. Right. Here's, here's three you can buy. <laughs> so how do you determine that? How do you determine? Well, that's a tricky, I, I don't think that's a formula, but I think it's a function of, one is uh, picking something that the company possibly can do from a cultural point of view you know to, to do advertising and we just did a, a client project on this they were trying to decide with a big committee and they were really risk averse and so all of a sudden the creative people came in with a really edgy idea that was oh that was cool well we can't really say that word and then somebody said i don't like that and when we were finished a month of revisions we read the script and it was like where's the idea you know, it's just completely, it sounds like a corporate sales brochure. <laughs> and so, and so the culture of the company wouldn't permit, since they had committee decisions, they couldn't, you know, as everyone knows, the best creative, it was no accident that Apple had a lot of great creative because he ran it like a tyrant. And it didn't matter if everyone hated it. Yeah, he was the captain of the pirate it. ship. Yeah, right. he didn't care. Uh, and <laughs> the, oh, the other was true. People can come up with a hundred reasons. That they've tested this forever, and he said, "Nah, don't care." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, yeah, you need I to mean, have a little bit of that. Yeah, you, you can't sell big, edgy creative of any type to consensus-driven, risk-averse organizations. Hmm. Interesting. You can do it, but you may not be great at it. Interesting. So, huh? So it's, so what if, what if, so, like, what if someone, what if a company and their, so their culture is their culture, right? Okay. Right. You can't change it. And if you think you can change their culture, that's, that's, that's what also. I was going to, I was going to ask. And they say, you know, but we, but you know, you know, we want, you know, Alan, we want to change our culture. We want to be more edgy. Yeah. We want to be, we're funny. We're really funny people. <laughs> yeah. And it's Everyone like giving somebody funny. who's not funny, you say, well, yeah. here's a joke book. It doesn't make somebody a comedian. Right. So, right. Um, somebody who's a good comedian can make humor out of nothing. You know, there's no formula. Yes, you, there's maybe some formula. But so I, I think it's really hard. And I think that's part of why this is art and science is understanding your company's culture. And if you're not 
if you're not spontaneous and can make, if you can't make fast decisions, don't try to be edgy. You know, I talk to um, uh, people in the fashion business about what the biggest challenge is, you know, fashion and cosmetics. And the biggest challenge is the, the executive described it was like surfing. I don't surf, but he said, if I'm ahead of the wave, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. people think I'm crazy. Mm-hmm. Of course, if I miss the wave, it's over it. by the it's time over. I come out with it. You know, everyone's yeah. already moved on. Right. But f- timing is everything, and that's. Re- but you need to be agile and fast. Mm-hmm. But if you're a slow, big moving GM type of company, and you say we're going to have the f- the first electric car out, unlikely. Yeah, yeah. Catching the wave. Yeah, that's always that that the whole viral your viral comment when right. you know when companies are like oh, I want to go viral. How do we do that? And I'm right. I'm just like roll my eyes or. Right. Because I like you have to catch the right wave. It's, it's right. luck. It's, it's, it's exactly. It's it's not. You don't put four numbers into an Excel spreadsheet and find out that the catch a wave. You have to spend twenty two dollars on media and five dollars on promotion. Yeah, you gotta be a little. You gotta take some risk, and you, you also have to gotta zig get when everyone else is zagging. And you, right, you got and you gotta get lucky. And there's right. a, like the riding the wave thing is a great analogy because yeah, if you don't catch it right, no amount of Right. <laughs> That's going to tell me you just can't. It's just crazy. Wow. So, um, so what questions do you think the next generation of entrepreneurs should ask themselves, you know, given, especially given your experience with all this creative well, and brand? Don't wait and- too long to do it because, uh, you know, I think it's better. You, you should assume that you're going to fail a couple of times. Mm-hmm. And it's, it gets harder to fail the longer you've been in the corporate game. Because mm-hmm. you get what I call the golden handcuffs. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you start making some salaries and you get very comfortable in, in the, the, the certainty of knowing that I'll be able to take vacation next Thanksgiving and I'll have enough money to go to the beach. And so you can plan your vacation for Thanksgiving. And if you're in a business by yourself, Thanksgiving may come. You may not be able to get away because A, your business may be in trouble or B, you're too busy. And you, if you leave now, you're going to leave money on the table. So, you know, but I do think starting earlier is is better than starting later. I think being honest with yourself as to what you're good at mm-hmm. <laughs> and what you like doing, because ultimately you have to be good at it and uh, you have to like doing it because you won't swing at the first pitch and hit it out of the park. You got to plan on a a few complete whiffs, Mm -hmm. maybe one foul ball, and maybe Mm -hmm. you can hit the, but you need, you need the, the, as people say, the resilience, the grit. Mm -hmm. Um, And you need to, you know, be able to learn uh, all the cliches are true. You need to be able to, you know, learn from failure and and recover, but uh, so don't wait too long. Um, don't and don't start too early though, because you know, when you first start out of school, lots of kids come out of school today, and they do. And yes, you you read about the the them. They're all social media heroes, and uh, and they're all billionaires already. Um, but that that's those are the those are the exceptions. That's the survivor bias, yeah. Yeah, and, no and so you know, so learn at somebody else's expense. Uh, learn, I always say, learn the right way to do it, so then you can take the shortcuts when you do your own. Exactly, thing. you'll you'll be a more educated consumer. So I, I actually think doing it in the first five years of your career is not as good as is doing it after that. But certainly, I don't, wouldn't want, recommend people wait till the the last quarter of your career, like I did. Uh, other than you know, you you have less risk because at that point you've already you know been reasonably successful, so you won't be you know, 
starving uh, food line. <laughs> you can still still afford the Cheerios. <laughs> Cheerios, exactly. <laughs> well, Alan, it's just been such a great uh, time talking to you. I really appreciated the all the wisdom, and it's just so wonderful. I learned a lot of really interesting things, and it's just so so great what you're doing. I love the whole what you're great at and what you can win at. Like, yeah. boy. easy easy to ask, hard to answer. Hundred percent, because most 100%. people are not honest with what they're good at. And but you you do know in your heart what you like doing. And if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you got to be thinking about this stuff in the shower. If you're not thinking about your business in the shower or running around the park, don't go into that business. Thanks so much, Alan, for the awesome conversation and the intersection of creativity and business and chaos and order and order and chaos. I loved it. So as promised, here are some actionable insights that I learned from my interview with Alan. First. Seek to understand. Listen to what your client or customer is struggling with before starting to figure out solutions. Another key factor is company culture. A consensus-driven, risk-adverse company culture is not usually going to embrace anything cutting edge. And so this was an interesting insight because even though they may want to be more creative and may want to be more edgy, if the culture is not that way, it's not going to happen. You're going to fight fight hard. The status quo, as we always talk about, is really strong. So in order to move someone's, move them away from the status quo, there has to be a very thoughtful process. So ask yourself the questions, what culture do I have at my company? What culture do I want? How are these new things that we're doing going to impact that culture, affect that culture, right? So really powerful. So that's actually was super interesting. Alan recommends that businesses focus on those one or two areas they do well to stand out rather than trying to do it all. This means focusing on the marketing strategies that you do well rather than trying to spread yourself too thin. This was another interesting one because a lot of times people do the whole spray and pray (laughs) methodology where you're like, I'm just going to try everything. Well, yeah, it probably doesn't work. Just like your company has to have one specific product. I think your marketing strategies, you have to figure out what you're good at. So I think you should ask yourself, you know, what am I good at? What can I double down on? You know, what can I kind of leverage and start out there? And then once you get really good at that, you know, you can probably go and try some experiments. Now, not saying that you just don't try anything because, of course, I'm always into (laughs) into experimentation. I love experiments, but it's really good. Like figure out what works for you and then do that really well until it stops working for you. That's an interesting idea. So think about that. Alan's recommendations for young entrepreneurs. First, don't wait too long. Spend some time in your industry learning on someone else's dime. But after five or so years, strike out before it gets too comfortable. This will also give you time to try and fail, which is inevitable for most entrepreneurs. Yeah, well, you know, I always say failure is an option, but never the end results. Um, As an entrepreneur, (laughs) you're going to have a lot of setbacks, struggles, chaos, zigs and zags. So, Really, you know, ask yourself the question, you know, if you think you're not ready enough, again, this is a really good kind of heuristic, right? Has it been five, five, six, ten years? I mean, you know, I spent at least six, seven years in corporate America before I decided, ah, this isn't for me. So ask those questions, maybe do a side hustle. You know, that's always a good one. Just sort of get your feet wet. If you really want to figure it out, you can't do it too soon, I think. Be honest with what you're good at. And what you like doing. If you're not thinking about your business in the shower or on a run, then you probably don't have the passion 
to see it through. And <laughs> yeah, this is what he ended on, which I thought was just so fascinating because it's true. You you have to be almost borderline obsessed. Um, and, and, and that sometimes gets in the way, to be honest. But you always want to be thinking, like, again, if you find to do something like, okay, how can I make this better, how, you know, in your head, really walking through those thought experiments. I think that's what he's trying to say here. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of thought experiments as well. And yeah, you should be thinking about it a lot. Now, does that mean that you obsess about it? Yeah, you probably will initially. But you know, it is good to have that thought process because the more you think about it, the more you turn it in your brain, your subconscious is going to help you figure out those problems that are hard to solve. And honestly, starting a business is a hard thing. So, you know, that's a great question to ask yourself. So there you have it, the actionable insights that I learned from my awesome interview with Alan. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learned something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur, and frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA, and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, the trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.